You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 238 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. With the last show, we wrapped up our discussion of the fighting at the Battle of Fredericksburg. On December 13, 1862, in their assaults against Marie's Heights, just outside the town, and during their attack against Prospect Hill, down on the southern part of the battlefield, the Federals had suffered over 12,500 casualties, while Confederate losses totaled less than 6,000 men. On the night of December 15th, 16th, shielded by darkness and a storm, the Army of the Potomac withdrew across the Rappahannock. The Federals left behind a good number of the wounded, those too badly injured to be moved, and then so many dead Yankees still littered the battlefield that Robert E. Lee took the unprecedented step of asking Burnside to send burial parties back across the river to inter the bodies. Reflecting upon the useless slaughter in front of Marie's Heights and the lost opportunity down at Prospect Hill, the lieutenant colonel of the 116th Pennsylvania concluded that Fredericksburg was, quote, the saddest hour that the Army of the Potomac ever knew. The Federals' best and really only chance to win the battle had revolved around their nearly successful breakthrough on the southern part of the battlefield when they pierced Stonewall Jackson's line. But despite that fact, both the Union and Confederate armies and the northern and southern public would remember Fredericksburg as the struggle for Marie's Heights. As Frank O'Reilly points out, they made an almost conscious effort to define the battle symbolically as two things— the defense of the stone wall, and the sacrifice of the Irish Brigade. Confederate veterans wrote at length about the stone wall, claiming in turn that they defended the wall, reinforced the wall, or watched the struggle for the wall. Many of those claims were made by men who never ventured within five miles of the wall. The same, however, can be said for the Federals and the Irish Brigade. Numerous stories talk about preceding the Irish, following the Irish, watching the Irish, and supporting the Irish, including accounts of soldiers posted miles away on the other part of the battlefield who were fighting against Stonewall Jackson's troops. This boiling down of Fredericksburg to the Stonewall and the Irish Brigade is important to understanding how the soldiers perceived the battle. 
On one hand, the Confederates wanted to remember Fredericksburg as a dominant performance by their superior army, where, safely shielded behind the wall, they gave the Yankees a perfectly good kicking. The Union soldiers, on the other hand, focused upon the notion that the Irish Brigade knew its attack was futile, but nevertheless faithfully performed its duty and was all but destroyed as a result. Its blood sacrifice became a common theme expounded upon by the Federals. That is, that the army never stood a chance at Fredericksburg, so the memory of the battle revolved around duty, discipline, and devotion, even in the face of certain death and failure. The fighting to the south for Prospect Hill didn't share any of those qualities, and so it became largely ignored in the battle's aftermath, as the soldiers and the public sought to assign meaning to victory and to defeat, to triumph and to tragedy. In Washington, the news of the disaster at Fredericksburg brought to a head a political crisis in the Republican Party that had been brewing for some time. That's because the military defeat was a tipping point for all the rumors and discontent among Republicans, especially in the Senate. Secretary of State William H. Seward was the principal target of this frustration. You see, many Republicans, particularly the Radicals, considered him the evil genius of the president's cabinet, the puppet master whose conservative sway over Lincoln had delayed emancipation, kept McClellan in command too long, and prevented the vigorous prosecution of the war. In two long caucus meetings on December 16th and 17th, an overwhelming majority of Republican senators voted to press for a reorganization of the cabinet in order to secure, quote, unity of purpose and action, end quote. Everyone involved in the caucus meetings understood that this unity of purpose and action would be achieved mainly by getting rid of Seward. Much of the push for this effort had come from Secretary of the Treasury Salmon Chase. The ambitious Chase was not only Seward's rival in the cabinet, but he also had his eye on becoming the Republicans' presidential candidate in 1864. This situation was the greatest challenge thus far to Abraham Lincoln's leadership. If the president, to use his own words, quote, unquote, caved in to the senator's demands, he would lose control of his administration. His power as leader of his party, head of government, and commander-in-chief would be seriously weakened. When word of the senatorial caucus leaked out, rumors swept Washington that the whole cabinet, and perhaps even Lincoln himself, would resign. The president called the charge of Seward's malign influence an, quote, absurd lie, when he unburdened himself to fellow Illinoisan Senator Orville Browning, who had voted against the resolution. What do those men want? Lincoln asked Browning, and then answered his own question. They want to get rid of me, and I am sometimes half disposed to gratify them. Since I heard last night of the proceedings of the caucus, I have been more distressed than by any event in my life. But Lincoln had pulled himself together by the time he met with the delegation of nine senators on the evening of December 18th. 
He didn't tell them that Seward, in order to take the pressure off the president, had tendered his resignation, but Lincoln hadn't accepted it. At any rate, the president listened quietly to the senator's speeches, quote, attributing to Mr. Seward a lukewarmness in the conduct of the war and seeming to consider him the real cause of our failures. Without committing himself one way or the other, Lincoln invited the senators back to the executive mansion for further discussion the next day. When they arrived, the senators were surprised to find the entire cabinet present, except for Seward. In a brief speech, the president said that whenever possible, he consulted the cabinet about important issues, but that he alone made the decisions, especially on matters concerning slavery and with regard to questions of military strategy and army command. Lincoln said that members of the cabinet sometimes disagreed, but they all supported a policy when it was decided upon. He also told his visitors that Secretary of State Seward was a valued member of the administration. The president then turned to the cabinet for confirmation of his remarks. All eyes looked to Chase, who was neatly put on the spot. He had told the senators that Seward was the evil, unseen hand manipulating Lincoln, so if he now agreed with the president, he would lose face with the senators, but if he disagreed with Lincoln, he would lose the confidence of the president. In the end, Chase mumbled a brief endorsement of Lincoln's remarks, but tried to save face by expressing regret that major decisions were often not fully discussed by the cabinet. Well, left high and dry by Chase's waffling, and fully aware that they had just been thoroughly outmaneuvered by Lincoln's superior political skills, the senators then quietly left the White House. A very embarrassed Chase returned the next day to offer his resignation. Let me have it, said Lincoln, and as he took the letter from the Treasury Secretary's hand, Lincoln mixed his metaphors, but nevertheless made his point by declaring, This cuts the Gordian knot. Now I can ride. I have a pumpkin in each end of my bag. Now the senators couldn't have Seward's head without losing their man Chase as well. Lincoln put both resignations in a drawer, the cabinet remained unchanged, and the political fallout from the defeat at Fredericksburg had been contained. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. 
Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The political fallout from the defeat at Fredericksburg may have been contained, but not the military fallout. The shocking dimensions of the defeat cast a pall over the Army of the Potomac. The initial shock boiled over into anger. Officers believed that the battle had been a nightmare of senseless carnage. The rank-and-file soldiers felt they had been slaughtered for no justifiable reason. Anger and bitterness spilled out in letters and journal entries. They used words like butchered and murdered to describe what had happened to them. They believed, as a captain declared, quote, No man could have fought better or shown more bravery than did ours in those repeated charges. Interestingly, while they didn't spare Burnside from harsh criticism, they largely blamed the, de- blamed the defeat and appalling bloodshed on the authorities in Washington. Specifically, there was a widespread sense that Secretary of War Edwin Stanton and General-in-Chief Henry Halleck had pushed Ambrose Burnside into an ill-fated battle. As for Burnside himself, in the aftermath of the battle, a staff officer noted how he had become, quote, careworn and miserable, end quote. Burnside brooded on Halleck's failure with the pontoons, on the magnitude of the defeat, and on the unreliability of some of his subordinates, particularly Franklin. Even while the cabinet crisis was unfolding back in Washington on December 18th, Burnside met with members of the Joint Committee of the Conduct of the War, who had come out to the Army in the immediate aftermath of the defeat to, in the words of one committee member, find out who was responsible for wasting, quote, precious blood in indecisive battles. The committee members allowed Burnside to describe his plans and his perspective on the operation at length, and he dwelt on the delay of the pontoons, while, not surprisingly, hurried through his account of the battle itself. Under questioning, Burnside denied that Lincoln, Stanton, or Halleck had directed the Army's movements, and, in striking contrast to McClellan's standard practice of refusing to accept responsibility for his failures, Ambrose Burnside refused to shift the blame for the defeat onto anyone else. Center Grand Division Commander Joseph Hooker appeared before the committee on December 20th. True to form, in his testimony he made it sound as if the only person with the intelligence, command ability, and moral courage to whip the rebels was fighting Joe Hooker. In his book, Fredericksburg, Fredericksburg, George Rabel writes that Hooker, quote, deplored the persistent influence of McClellan toadies such as William Franklin and Baldy Smith, never hesitated to fault his superiors, and encouraged speculation that he might soon displace Burnside. And just as an aside, but if you're wondering about this Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War, well, we did a couple of shows on it earlier in the podcast. It was around episode number 75. 
But anyway, the committee was created in December of 1861 and was the tool of the radical Republicans and a few of their Democratic allies. It was given broad investigative powers, but its primary focus was the investigation of military matters, usually defeats, and usually involving the Army of the Potomac. The committee tended to support generals, regardless of competence, who were associated with anti-slavery principles and the Republican Party, while attempting to remove officers who didn't show sufficient enthusiasm for anti-slavery principles and who were identified with the Democratic Party. For the entire war, the committee butted heads with the Lincoln administration and hounded many of the Army's top top officers with regard to the conduct of military operations, particularly the Army of the Potomac. At any rate, it's rather remarkable that less than a week after the end of the battle here at Fredericksburg, committee members came out into the field to the army to investigate the defeat and decide whom to blame. On the same day that Abraham Lincoln solved the cabinet crisis by outwitting the senatorial caucus and pocketing the resignations of Seward and Chase, two generals in the Army of the Potomac wrote the president a long letter criticizing Ambrose Burnside and urging a change of strategy. To be exact, they urged a return to the peninsula. The two generals were William Franklin and Baldy Smith, commanders of the Left Grand Division and the Sixth Corps. Both were McClellanites, who had never really accepted his removal from command. Lincoln saw their recommendation to return the army to the peninsula as a thinly-veiled move to get Little Mac back in command of the Army of the Potomac, and he rejected their suggestion. However, this exchange didn't end the matter. You see, rather than going into winter quarters, Burnside was determined to redeem himself and so had been finalizing plans for another offensive move. He put together a plan to cross the Rappahannock simultaneously above and below Fredericksburg. Union infantry would cross some seven miles below the town, while a large force of cavalry would strike across the Rappahannock upriver at Kelly's Ford. By December 26th, Burnside decided enough time had passed for the Army to resupply, re-equip, and recover from its fatigue after the defeat at Fredericksburg, and so on that day he ordered his lieutenants to start preparations to get the Army ready to move. Burnside expected to start his next offensive on December 31st. It was not to be, though. On December 30th, Brigadier Generals John Newton and John Cochran, commanders of a division and a brigade in Baldy Smith's Corps, appeared at the White House. They told the President that the Army was demoralized, that Burnside was preparing to cross the Rappahannock again, and that if he did so, the result would be a disaster. Lincoln saw this affair as another ploy by the McClellanites to stab Burnside in the back and restore Little Mac to command. But at the same time, he was deeply troubled by the obvious lack of confidence within the army in Burnside, and he was anxious over the negative impact another major reverse would have in Washington and on the northern home front. And so the president wired Burnside, saying, 
I have good reason for saying you must not make a general movement of the army without letting me know. Lincoln's telegram arrived on the night of December 30th, with the army prepared for action the next day. With the arrival of the president's wire, though, everything came to a stop. General John Park, Burnside's chief of staff, said, quote, "The order came upon him like a thunderbolt." To say that Ambrose Burnside was stunned is an understatement. He wondered how to interpret the dispatch, since he was at a loss as to what had prompted it. What seems certain, however, is that in a single sentence, Burnside had lost control of his army. Yes, he retained nominal command of the Army of the Potomac, but he couldn't move it without first checking with Lincoln. Baffled by the president's interference, Burnside nevertheless canceled his offensive. After canceling his offensive, Burnside asked for a meeting with Lincoln as soon as possible. The general arrived at the White House early on the morning of January first, eighteen sixty-three. It would be an eventful day for the president as he put the finishing touches on the Emancipation Proclamation, and then at eleven he started to shake hands for three hours in the traditional New Year's Day reception. After which he gathered with a small group to sign the historic proclamation. Despite the historic significance of signing the Emancipation Proclamation, the meeting with Burnside was undoubtedly a black cloud hanging over Lincoln's New Year's Day. Burnside wanted to know why his plans had been canceled. Lincoln said it was his understanding that the Army's senior officers lacked confidence in Burnside and that the Army was seriously demoralized. The general demanded to know who had told the president that. But Lincoln declined to name the snitches. Deflated, Burnside begged permission to start his offensive. Lincoln refused, saying he had doubts about its chances for success. Burnside was upset and understandably felt powerless, unable to use the army as he saw fit, or to find out who had thrown him under the bus. He offered to resign. He also suggested the Secretary of War and General in Chief ought to resign as well, since they lacked the confidence of the army and the country. Lincoln waved off Burnside's offer to resign, made no comment about the suggestion regarding Stanton and Halleck, and instead asked the unhappy commander of the Army of the Potomac to come back later in the day. Lincoln asked Stanton and Halleck to attend the second meeting. At which Burnside again pressed the president to accept his resignation. Undaunted by Stanton and Halleck's presence, Burnside repeated his earlier suggestion that they should resign too. Halleck bristled at this, although Stanton was unfazed by it. Burnside then demanded that Lincoln dismiss the officers who had stabbed him in the back and derailed his plans, but the president again refused. Ambrose Burnside returned the next morning to plead his case one last time. Lincoln, he insisted, ought to either approve his offensive or sack his enemies. But Burnside left to return to the army, having been rebuffed by the president again on both matters. The Army of the Potomac's Provost Marshal Marcina Patrick saw Burnside shortly after his return on January second, and reported the army commander was quote. 
feeling badly. That was probably putting it mildly. In any case, a dejected Burnside confided to Patrick that Lincoln wouldn't let him move the army. And with that sad state of affairs, that's where we'll leave things this week. Next time, we'll look at how Lincoln unexpectedly asked Burnside to try another forward movement in light of other campaigns and happenings elsewhere, and how that ill-fated operation turned into the notorious and miserable Mud March in January 1863. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Over Lincoln's Shoulder, The Committee on the Conduct of the War by Bruce Tapp. This is actually a re-recommendation of this book since we've already recommended it once. But since this is a topic we find to be incredibly fascinating and largely underappreciated by the Civil War crowd, well, we don't have any hesitations about rolling it out again. Plus, the first time we recommended it was about 160 episodes ago. And let's be honest, that's a long time ago. So most of you probably won't even remember that first time around for Over Lincoln's Shoulder, The Committee on the Conduct of the War by Bruce Tapp. Don't forget you can find a complete list of all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org where you can find all the books we've recommended once, a few we've recommended twice, and maybe even one we've tried to sneak in there three or four times. Yeah, she's just kidding. Anyway, as we wrap things up for this show, we want to be sure to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Cody, Nathan, and Scott. Thanks, guys. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time when Ambrose Burnside will join the ranks of the ex-commanders of the Army of the Potomac. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.